Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook and your host for this weekly review of all the latest news and developments affecting the investment trust sector. My thanks to JP Morgan Asset Management for agreeing to sponsor the podcast, which as a result will now remain free for the foreseeable future. Moneymakers is an independent research and publishing venture with a mission to explain and inform. But I must remind you that for regulatory reasons, nothing you hear from any speaker today should be regarded as constituting individual investment advice. This week, I'm joined by James Carthew, a director of Quoted Data, the research firm, to talk about the week's trust news and results. And also by Baroness Altman, better known as Ros Altman, the pensions campaigner, who's introduced a private member's bill, which she hopes will free investment trusts from the unfair cost disclosure rules that many founders of trusts have been campaigning against and blame for aggravating the general derating of trusts we've seen over the past two years. I ask her why she took up this rather recherche cause, what she hopes will now happen to her bill, and what confidence we can have that this problem will be resolved in a sensible period of time. I think you might find that interesting. Also this week, those of you who are already subscribers to the Moneymakers Circle should have received the first of a new weekly email that provides additional news, data and analysis for anyone who is interested in owning investment trusts and has signed up to become a member of the Circle. In the email, you will find my colleague Stuart Watson's summary of all the week's most significant news and results from the investment trust sector, together with a link to all the relevant RNS announcements, plus our regular weekly investment trust profile. This week, it's BlackRock Greater Europe. And more comments from me on individual trusts and our illustrative portfolios and the market outlook. A number of new features here. Membership of the Circle costs just £2 a week, and I hope that if you are not already a subscriber, you will give this new expanded weekly email a trial. In the markets, it was another decent week for risk assets, with the UK, European and US equity markets moving higher. Smaller companies doing notably better in the UK, although the Chinese and Japanese equity markets both declined around 3%. Gilt yields continue to fall, leading to gains for longer-dated gilts in particular. Just as they did a year ago, bond investors, not just here, but in the US as well, are now betting on a series of rate cuts next year. But that was an expensive wrong call to make a year ago. Will it be any better this time round? I'm not so sure, but we'll see. Meanwhile, commodities were generally weaker, with gold, oil and copper all edging lower, which is certainly not inconsistent with the view that the risk of a recession has not diminished. The Investment Trust Index, meanwhile, was up 0.7%, with gainers outnumbering losers by around 2 to 1. It was encouraging to see the biotech names and some of Bailey Gifford's growth trusts featuring among the leaders after what's been a particularly fallow period, shall we say, for both those categories. China-focused trusts were again amongst the most prominent names on the list of decliners. They've had a bad year. Another useful reminder that what the markets expect at the start of the year in this case, a strong performance from China as it came out of lockdown, so often fails to materialise, as it has done in this case. One interesting development that deserves a mention this week was the announcement yesterday, Friday, that Aberdeen has said that it intends to commit to invest up to six months' worth of its management fees into the shares of its range of UK-listed closed-end funds, which it says signals a strong commitment to them and their attractive current valuations and also would have the effect of improving the alignment of interest between the management company and the shareholders. They say that if this proposed investments, they need to be subject to the relevant law and regulations, but they expect that the total amount they could be investing in their own trusts could exceed £30 million, with the timing being based on when the underlying fees are received. I can't remember any management company making this kind of proposal before, and it certainly does seem to represent a big vote of confidence in the range of trusts that Aberdeen still manages. They have been very active, as we know, in combining some of their trusts. They're merging or combining a number of their trusts in the portfolio. Uh, but they still have a significant number, around 17 trusts, to which this initiative will apply. Very interesting to see whether this is followed by anybody else. Uh, I suspect that's unlikely. But what impact it might have on the rating of these particular Aberdeen managed trusts. Turning to results, there are again far too many to recount them all here. That is one of the reasons why we 
uh, now offering an expanded and more comprehensive roundup of results and announcements for subscribers to the circle. As well as the corporate news, I will be discussing shortly with James Carthew some of the trusts posting annual results this week. They include Finsbury Growth and Income, ticker FGT, which has reported its third successive year of underperformance against the All Share Index benchmark. BlackRock Frontiers, BRFI, which in contrast has outperformed its benchmark nicely over the past five years. And Lowland, the Henderson Managed UK Equity Income Trust, ticker LWI, which also posted some good numbers, a total return of around 15% over its latest 12-month period, again ahead of its benchmark. And Residential Secure Income, ticker RESI, a trust which is reorienting its strategy in the wake of uh, recent developments. There are also annual results from JP Morgan Japanese and Tritax Eurobox, and interims and commentary you might want to look at from Personal Assets, Monks, Templeton Emerging Markets, and Linsell Train Investment Trust. As regular listeners will know, there's never any shortage of things to talk about in the investment trust sector. It's well worth noting, I think, that November was one of the best months for investors that we have seen for a fair while, with the Investment Trust Index producing a total return of 7% as discounts started to narrow, finally. On the other hand, the amount of issuance by investment trusts was the lowest we've seen since January 2009. Let's hope that the omens for future returns are as good now as they were back in January 2009, which proved to be just about the last throes of the great 2007-2009 global financial crisis bear market. Well, we can hope. I shall be talking more about the outlook for the investment trust sector next year in due course, and you'll also find some comments from me about that issue in the latest edition of the Annual Investment Trust Handbook, which will be published formally next week, but which you can already purchase or download for free from the uh, Moneymakers website or from Harriman House, the publishers. There's more than 340 pages this year, a record, in which includes lots of data, plenty of analysis of what's happened over the past year, most of it uh, pretty discouraging, but also some optimistic views about the future from where we are at the moment. Do feel free to give it a look. So this week, again, I was able to catch up with James Carfew, the former fund manager, who's now a director of Quoted Data and head of research there. And last time we spoke was actually, I, I looked it up about three or four months ago now, James. So and quite a lot has happened. And, and last, we can talk about something which has been slightly positive, which is actually seeing the derating, at least pause, and in certain cases, reverse. So November's been a very good month for investment trusts. Numbers are out. So what are your feelings about how the markets have developed and how this investment trust sector rating has done this, at least, temporary vault fast? It is quite encouraging. I think when we look back on it, we say that actually the Nadir was the middle of October, whenever we had this sort of little mini panic about whether US rates were going to go higher again and the US Treasury yield sort of spiked up a bit. And then from then on, especially so we had the good inflation numbers come in and a bit sort of more warm noises about soft landing and that sort of thing. But it does seem like the market's got us, I'm not saying animal spirits, I think that'd be saying they'd be going too far, but definitely slightly less miserable than it was. And in terms of the investment trust sector, I mean, we've seen some quite sharp moves in a number of cases, which is obviously yeah. encouraging. It makes one wonder how far all this derating has been driven simply by liquidity or how far by fundamental analysis, shall we say. The correlation with gilt yields, it was pretty tight on the way as things derated, and that's reversed. But not every trust has picked up, have they? And there's still no sectors, I noted this week, which are trading at a premium again. So we're still quite a long way from No, uh, there's a long way to go. That sort of lurch down we had September, October, we're sort of making that up again, but trying to get back to more reasonable levels that we saw earlier on this year is going to take some more time. But that just means more, more upside. More upside. That's the positive way to look at it, yeah. Do you think that some of these initiatives that boards have been taking have actually contributed to the revival or not? Um, obviously, a number of boards have been doing share buybacks. A number of them have started to talk about consolidation, of course, or actually do consolidation. Do you think this has helped in terms of sentiment or actually in terms of sheer buying returning to the sector? It should have worked. I mean, that all of these discounts are just a supply and demand equation. And, and we have been reducing supply side quite aggressively with the buybacks. I haven't got any numbers for November yet. I think our guys are working them out. But I know in October, I think it was about sort of £600 million that got bought back. But a big chunk of that was Pantheon doing its £150 million buyback. And it just seemed to me that we, we have 
shrunk that supply side down, and that's that's obviously good news. And that means there'd be a bit more of a squeeze going up when the demand picks up again. So um, I'm hopeful that some things will get back to trading at much closer to asset value. But I mean, even some of the things that have been targeted by the ARBs are now trading quite tight discounts. So something like European Opportunities, I think it's down to about 7% discount. If I saw it on there now, I'd say well, that's, that's actually quite reasonable. So yeah, I think all this stuff is, is starting to work. And yeah, I'm, I'm kind of optimistic. It's encouraging. And boards are clearly listening to shareholders when they moan now and actually being proactive and doing something about it. Okay, well, let's talk about some specifics then, shall we? Let's start with a couple of trusts that are perhaps looking at uh, continuation votes. The first of those is uh, Biopharma Credit. This is a trust which obviously has a very good long-term record, but has run into problems with its largest individual loan. It lends money to uh, pharmaceutical companies and, and biotech companies. What do you think the outlook for that one is? It's an interesting vehicle, and literally only this year has it really run into problems. Yeah, it's Lemira DX, the problem loan. It's just going on quite a long time in terms of trying to get it resolved. They, they seem to be making some headway, so there have been some management changes at the underlying company, but it is a long slog. The point is, find it's making loans to biotech pharmaceutical companies secured really on the revenues of drugs that these things have got. I don't think it's ever had a loss. I'm willing to be corrected on that, but I think my understanding is that since they've been doing this whole investment approach, I don't think they've actually had to crystallize a loss because even when something goes wrong, there's obviously you know you've got the equity to wipe out first before the debt loses money. So it's problematic because obviously the discounts opened up as people are slightly nervous about it. But the underlying strategy just goes strength to strength. I mean, they, they had some news last week where they made a, a loan to Immunogen and Abvi, big pharma company, came out and said, we're going to pay $10 billion to buy out Immunogen. And that meant that the loan got prepaid. And when these things get prepaid, they get some quite chunky penalties, early prepayment penalties that, that flow back to buy pharma credit. And yeah, it's, it's really quite encouraging. I think that alone added like 14.5 million to the NEV for a loan that they'd only made a couple of months ago, I think. The Lumira, though, they've got to go through a long, torturous process to get that restructured. Once that happens, I think it's short to trade back at NEV again, given the high yields it offers. So I like it. I really hope that shareholders don't rush for the exit. I don't think they will, though. And I can easily imagine it trading back at asset value next year sometime. I would be surprised. I mean, the thing about it, which I think perhaps not everybody appreciates, is A, it's quite a large trust. It's yeah. got a market cap of about a billion, I think. And it's now trading at a big discount, which is very rare for 15% or so. I think it has come in a bit and is offering a yield of 8%. There's actually two Trump problem loans, I think, but uh, they're both quite large. And one of the factors is, I think, that until they sort it out, it actually limits what else they can do in terms of things like share buybacks and so so uh, I think it's interesting. I'd be very surprised if the continuation vote fails, but you never know in this kind of febrile climate we're in. Let's talk about another one then. What about one that's just had a continuation vote, which is Vina Capital Vietnam Opportunities Trust, ticker yeah. VOF. They had a continuation vote, which they passed, but uh, there was a 29% vote against continuation, which is not the ideal outcome you want, really, is it? You'd either like to pass it convincingly or fail it rather than be left with this. Vietnam means an interesting market. It's always done pretty well. So what have these guys done wrong, do you think, that uh, has prompted the 29% vote against them? It is hard to say what triggered that. Well, we know specifically what happened because the, the board boys came out and said it. The big shareholder wanted them to put in place a performance-triggered tender offer. So if they fail to beat an index over a period of time, it's going to be like three years or something like that then they would be a tender offer for whatever percentage of the company that the shareholder was after. I'm not a massive fan of these things anyway, but I can understand why some people think they're useful. It wouldn't be the sort of thing, I would have thought, that would get people that exercise that they'd vote against continuation of the fund. So they must have had a sort of almighty row in the background. It's hard now because it's such a big vote against. The board now have to go and talk to their advisors and then go back and talk to the shareholder and work out their differences with them and then publish what happened on the back of that. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. But we love Vietnam and I hold Vietnam opportunity. I had no idea that anybody would be that unhappy. I just don't, never, don't even think anybody would vote continuation. It is one of the big successful funds in the sector. And there's definitely no reason I can think of why it ought to go. It's not like it lost people money. It's actually made people money over the last five yeah. years. It's not as if it's actually performed poorly. 
Let's talk about uh, Picton Property Income, ticker PCTN. This is a trust which uh, obviously was in discussions about a merger with another property trust, but that's been called off. Where does that leave Picton, which is not the largest in the sector and not the best in the sector, I would say? Where does this leave them? They're quite keen to be bigger. And UK commercial property, if they'd done that deal, that would have been all they needed to do. I mean, that's a 750 million market cap company. So, so knocking that together with Picton would, would achieve something of a really decent size. question is, what other targets are there out there? There's not much that's equivalent size in asset terms, so that you can do sort of some smaller, bittier deals maybe. Not all of those funds will definitely be looking for an exit. Some of them are on really quite big discounts still. Maybe there's an opportunity there. So the UK commercial property rating is on about 28 discount at the moment. Something like a custodian is only on about 11, but that's 300, 400 million. Balanced commercial property, maybe a bit more interesting. That's almost a 40% discount. But they are going to have to convince people that they can deliver something better than the existing managers can. But there's not that many really obvious targets. Right. And meanwhile, of course, I think the shares are down around 17% this year, something like that, which is not the worst, but it's certainly not the best. But they do have this feature of being self-managed, and that's an interesting feature, which I guess maybe they thought would be more attractive to other parties than it's turned out to be, because yeah. it might get you around these cost disclosure issues that we're going to be talking about later in the exactly. podcast. Exactly. It's something that came to my mind when they when they first announced that they were looking at doing this deal. It seemed like an obvious move that to kind of get the fund out of the cost disclosure reporting problem by going from being an investment company to not being an investment company. I think what you're saying is it's not necessarily the end of the consolidation in the property sector. Uh, no. But of course, these things are very hard to pull off. And in this case, obviously, the largest shareholder in UK commercial properties said he wasn't interested in yeah, Phoenix Life. It's not any more legally connected to Aberdeen, but they are quite close to them. And so I think they felt that they wanted to stick with the Aberdeen investment team. So nothing changed from that point of view. We've mentioned European Opportunities Trust in the context of something else. They've been the first target of Saba Capital to come to a vote, and that's resulted in them bringing forward this tender offer, which is going to be held next month in January. Do you think Saba will be happy with that? And if not, what do you think their strategy is going to be? Are they going to disappear if they fail to get what they want, bank a small profit and then move on? Or do you think they're hungry for more? Yeah, somebody suggested to me this week that maybe they won't tender. Maybe they'll stick with it and become a bigger slice of the pie. I think that's unlikely, actually. I think they are generally trying to turn the money around quite quickly to invest in things and then trying to get back out again, closer to asset value in relatively short order, which is why they wanted this tender. I thought the tender was a mistake. I love European opportunities. I think it's going to turn itself around and, and be a better trust in time. So that's all related to the growth versus value debate. And having had a sort of peak in rates, I do think it's going to perform better now. That's by the by. There's about 40-something percent of European Opportunities Register that's held by these discount players. So Sabra is not the biggest on the register by any means. Allspring and 1607 both have bigger holdings than Sabra does. And there's City of London on there too, City of London Investment Management. So if they all say, right, this is our chance to get out, you've immediately got to swamp the tender. So the tender is not going to take them all out. And everybody's going to get priority down, so Saba's still going to be there for the holding. So they're just going to come back and try again, I'd imagine, which is frustrating. So all the, the European Opportunities Board did was just guarantee that it's going to shoot by 25% and then without really solving the problem. So I think that they should have done is just been more aggressive in buybacks. It's a relatively liquid portfolio. It would have been doable for them to so publicly say, look, we're going to buy shares with the aim of trying to keep the discount in relatively low single digits, like sort of 5 6%, and it would have moved there and that would have been problem solved, really. And maybe that's the solution after this. I can't imagine that Saba is going to want to wait until the next scheduled tender in 2026. That seems unlikely to me. That doesn't seem part of their business model, should we say. <laughs> they need sooner results than that. Another property-related trust we haven't discussed so far is uh, Residential Secure Income, ticker RESI, R-E-S-I, where the management and the board have said that they recognise that wide sector discounts are a problem and they are reviewing options to reverse this situation. What's your feelings about this particular trust? It's not one that features very often in the headlines. No, it's sort of been quietly beavering away, building his portfolio. It owns lots of houses. They did quite a good job in raising money and, and getting the portfolio deployed. But as we know, obviously, higher interest rates is putting downward pressure on valuations generally. 
And they've just put results out and they, they have slashed the NAV quite significantly. And they've also said, look, we don't think the dividend's sustainable. We're going to have to cut that. So we had a, a fall in the net tangible assets, which is the equivalent of the NAV, of about 18% on the back of a 10% fall in the portfolio. And that was just caused by marketing the yield that they um, value the properties at up by 0.8%. So you can see this kind of sensitivities to all of this. It is quite geared too. And obviously, if you've got debt on one side and assets on the other and you mark value the assets down, then, then the, your gearing ratio goes up. So they've got a loan-to-value ratio of about 50%, which sounds quite hairy, but you think people are quite happy to buy houses on a 90% mortgage. So um, maybe it's, it's kind of doable. The key to it, though, is that most of that debt is fixed and cheap. Uh, they have got some floating rent debt, and that's weighing on the income a bit. But they are in the process of selling off a chunk of the portfolio. So they've got a whole portfolio of stuff with local authorities, and they're going to sell that and then use that money to wipe out the floating rate debt. And then once they've done that, the whole thing's going to be in a much more stable, sensible place. They're going to cut the dividend, I think, from about 5.16p down to 4.12p which is annoying. I mean, if you're an existing shareholder, it's obviously quite annoying. But going forward, I think it's still going to look quite attractive. These results, I think, and put the floor under it now, and then it's just got to sort of rebuild its reputation a bit. I always like the way that people don't talk about cutting the dividend, they're rebasing it. They're <laughs> rebasing the dividend, which always means it's never rebased higher, let's put it that way. Now, again, this is again, it's quite small, isn't it? Only 110 million market cap, I think. And it's on a very big discount, one of the widest in the sector. And shares have been a really poor performer this year almost worse than anything else, so down 28% or so. So I guess they had to do something, and if they don't, then there might be issues about its future viability, which you agree with that. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about another strategic review, which is ECOFIN US Renewables, ticker R-N-E-W, obviously a renewable energy trust, which has had some specific problems, not least with violent weather, including a tornado in Texas, which has been problematic for them. What have they been saying, and what do you think about the situation there? So the tornado in Texas took out the power line that connected their wind farm to the power grid. Well, it didn't just take out the power line, it actually destroyed the substation. And unfortunately, some people got killed. It was all a bit horrible, really. So that's knocked a big chunk of their income out, and they had to cut the dividend on the back of that. And then they also had a problem at one of their solar farms, which again sounds slightly ridiculous, but basically the wires were getting chewed by rats, and so the whole solar farm just kept cutting out. And that's taken some time to fix. What they said this week is that the wind farm is going to be connected to the grid again via this kind of temporary fix solution that the power companies put in place. They said middle of December, so I guess end of next week. That's a couple of weeks later than planned, and it means they've got a couple of weeks where they haven't been earning income and that hasn't been covered by insurance. So there's a hit there, but I think we're only talking in the terms of like a few hundred thousand dollars. And then they've got some insurance payments coming through, the solar things back online. Generally, the problems that it did have, it's sorted its way through. But the board basically pressed the sort of self-destruct button on the back of all of this. And so they've said, we are looking for buyers for the portfolio. Maybe we'll merge it with something. But it seems more likely that they're going to try and sell it off. And this thing's trading on quite a big discount. It's weird, actually. It's on as wide a discount today as it was immediately after the tornado hit, which was the kind of an idea. And so it's almost 40%. And you've got something where the, the portfolio is kind of fixed and will be earning income. And, you know, if you sat still this time next year, they'd be able to reinstate the old dividend again. And they're going to sell the assets, you know, maybe not necessarily for the NAV, but won't be for a big haircut in the NAV. That just seems cheap to me. <laughs> but there we go. The upsetting thing about all of this is that there's a massive, massive opportunity in renewables in the US. On the back of the Inflation Reduction Act, there's this huge subsidies Everybody's making up like bandits, apart from us here in the UK investment companies market. We, sh we should be piling in here, but um, that's not the way it's worked out. So a couple more quick ones then. Let's talk briefly about Bearings Emerging Europe and EMA Investment Trust, ticker BEMO. This is obviously a trust that had a big problem with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, because that essentially forced them to write down all their Russian assets to zero. What have they said this week and what do you feel about that? A couple of interesting bits there. So one thing, so as you said, they had to write down everything they owned in Russia down to zero. They've been able to sell something this week, which is, I was really quite surprised by, but there's a partner store, I think so, called Magnet, or maybe the supermarkets, one of those two. 
And they've done a tender for foreign shareholders in dollars. And BMO's been able to sell its shares. It's not a huge amount of money. I think it's about $600,000 just shy. But nevertheless, that's gone into their normal bank account and will add about just under 1% to the NAV. That's all good tick in the box. It's unlikely that there'll be many more of these. The only reason that it happened is the Russian government said, you can do these sorts of things. Obviously, dollars are quite precious. But so the condition is, it has to be at least half price. So actually, they've sold out a massive discount to the uh, prevailing price in, in Moscow, but there wouldn't be no other way of, of actually taking money out of the country. And they've also announced some results this week. One of the things they've said is that they are exploring ways of trying to ring-fence the Russian assets, um, separate them from the rest of the portfolio. If they can do that, then there's a, a more realistic chance they'll be able to market the fund and actually raise some money for it, close the discount down and make it bigger. It's too small at the moment. It's only about 55 million market cap. And if they don't do anything, they've got a 25% tender offer that's going to be treated in 2025. And that will shrink the fund to a level that's completely unviable. So they need to find a solution that lets them expand the fund. Otherwise, the thing is going to die in a couple of years' time. And I think that would be a shame. I, I do quite like the managers. They've done a reasonable job. So the proper name is, is Bearing Emerging EMEA Opportunities. So they basically took all the bits that weren't in the Eastern Europe and they made it an uh, Emerging Europe, Middle East and Africa fund. And the Middle Eastern stuff's been doing really quite well. So I like it. I think it should survive. I'm hoping that they'll be able to create a kind of, some kind of separate share class that covers just the Russian stuff and actually do something about the discount and, and keep going. But we'll have to wait and see. So there's a balancing out there because presumably they want to keep the possibility of actually getting some value out of those Russian assets eventually, depending on what happens if there is a peace in Ukraine or whatever. They want to keep that sort of contingent possibility open while at the same time actually not letting it hang like a sort of Damocles over the rest of the trust. So there's a problem at the moment because obviously if they try to issue new shares, then the existing shares will be like, hang on a minute, you're diluting my recovery in Russia that's coming down the line and then they'd all block it. So that's the reason they need to sort it out. The weird thing is that this fund's on a 25 discount with a zero value of his Russian assets and the JP Morgan Russian fund is on like 170 premium. And I do not understand why investors prepare to give some value to the JP Morgan Russian things and not to the BMO ones. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. So it looks cheap to me. Okay, so let's turn quickly to uh, just some other results that are out this week. There have been some quite big names that put out results this week. I'm not going to go through them all. There's not time to go through them all, unfortunately, but you can read them all as a subscriber to the Moneymaker Circle. You'll find all the details there. I've mentioned four that have had annual results, so we'll just pick up on any of those that you think are worth commenting on. So Finsbury Growth and Income Trust, that's Nick Train's UK Equity uh, Income Trust. Underperformed for the third year in a row, and quite badly too, and it's quite a long way behind its benchmark. That's obviously disappointing. In that it's gone out to a discount. It's not a very big discount, but it has gone out to a discount. It used to just be concentrating a premium and issuing stock. It's interesting reading Nick's commentary on the back of it. I do have a lot of sympathy for him. His main point is that there are five stocks. I think it's Shell, BP, Rio, Glencore and HSBC that have all done relatively well as people have been buying these kind of mega caps rather than small caps and mid caps in the UK. He doesn't hold any of them, and they account for two-thirds of his underperformance. And it's not his style to hold energy things, banks. It's, it's just not his style at all. And so he was never going to own them. And so whatever happened, he was always going to have this underperformance. There are other more stock-specific things. He's got a very concentrated portfolio, doesn't get everything right all the time. The other thing that he's highlighted is that he thinks he doesn't have a big enough exposure to technology. So um, that's been a headwind too. It might all come right. I mean, it's let's say it's been three years on a performance now. People haven't really been looking for those kind of quality growth names that he likes. That might change next year. I can't guarantee that. So I think if people were worried about a slowdown, then they would be a sort of rush to quality. We'll just have to wait and see what, what next year holds. The other thing is uh, we had um, interims out from Insel Train this week. And that underperformance is weighing on that management company. So a big chunk of the Linsel Trade Investment Trust, NAV, is the stake in the management company. And they've been had quite a lot of outflows from the fund, and they've had to write that down. 
So again, you've had a tinted falling NEV there. It's going to knock on effect from what's been going on. And there we are. I'd like to think that we are close to the bottom for things being coming growth and big train. I think it's fair to say that not holding those things he doesn't own actually contributed to his strong performance in other periods. So it's a bit horses for courses is this one. And uh, you can, of course, always hold it in a portfolio with something yeah. which follows a different strategy and you get the benefit of his uh, performance when you get it. The only other problem I have with this fund, things being from growth now, is that it's in the UK for the income sector and and the yield is pitiful. It's two and a bit percent and the yield on the all share is close to four and the median yield in the sector is close to five. I don't think in any way shape and form it's an income fund, but that's, that's just me. Nor does it pretend to be, I don't think so. I think, as you say, it's anomalous really where it sits. So let's talk also about other results out this week. We've heard from Lowland, ticker LWI, BlackRock, Frontiers, Investment Trust and Tritax, Eurobox all produce annual results, so stick just to those. Any of those that particularly caught your eye this week? BlackRock Frontiers has performed quite well. Yeah, actually, I do love that fund. There's just been this sort of general aversion to emerging markets for years and years and years, slightly linked to strong dollar, to also to the weakness of Chinese economy in face of COVID and stuff like that. And we've seen quite a lot of emerging markets fund disappear. This is a great survivor. And actually, it just shows what you can do if you have a good stock picker. It doesn't really matter that the underlying index hasn't done amazingly well. He's been able to actually generate some really serious, attractive returns. So numbers-wise, I think we're talking about an NAV return for the year to 30 September of 25% in dollar terms which is 20 percentage points more than the benchmark return. So all good stuff, really. So there's another trust that used to trade at a premium, or quite often traded at a premium. We haven't seen that for a while now. I guess that might come back as well at some point. It might do. Yeah, it might do. The other interesting thing about this, it pays decent income, and that's all naturally generated income. It's not sort of paying out capital. I think that might be attractive to some people as well. And finally then, what about Lowland? Do you have any thoughts on Lowland? Again, another trust that doesn't really feature in the headlines very much. It sort of does its own thing. But what are your thoughts about that one? Again, I have a soft spot for Laura Farrell and James Henderson. I think they're great. And actually, they've turned out some quite decent numbers for this year in a market where UK is still very much unloved, small cups still very much unloved. So for them to produce positive numbers and decent outperformance of the index is a good thing. So they've done that. And they're still coming out and saying the UK is one of the sort of most attractive valuations that they've ever seen. And you should be filling your boots. So this is sort of the general message of it. I don't disagree with them, actually. I've been sneaking away UK small cap type investments into my pension fund recently. I think it could be a place to be next year, hopefully. Well, they have poked up, certainly, as we said earlier, along with the general re-rating we've seen. The small caps certainly have been notable movers. Well, some of them have anyway, not all of them. Some of them have been. So as we head in towards the end of the year, James, do you think we're going to see this normal kind of, some people call it Santa rally, carry on until the end of the year? Beyond that, what are your thoughts? Do you have any general thoughts other than it'll be what it will be? <laughs> well, I think rates are higher for longer. I think most people would agree with that. We will see rate cuts towards the back end of next year, I think. And that will all be encouraging for everything that's valued on yields. So this is why I think generally we should see more discount narrowing in all of these oversold sectors the renewables and, and you know infrastructure and all those sorts of things. And also, I'm hoping for a, a much better performance from the UK. Japan's interesting because obviously that's had a great year in terms of local terms, but the yen's still been very weak. I think we could get a yen rally. That might have knock-on effects in other places, but we'll have to wait and see on that. And this this thing, business you're going to talk about in a minute, with the, the cost disclosure thing, if that is rectified, that could have quite a big impact on discounts. But I think that's going to be a slow burn. So it won't be like an instant leap in, in share prices. But I think that we will get buyers that might have left the sector coming back again or looking again slowly over the course of years rather than weeks. So without getting too much into the forecasting game, if all these things happen, then we should at least see some relative good performance by investment trusts, even if the absolute numbers aren't necessarily perhaps as great as we've seen in some recent years. Yeah, I'd, I'd say look for things that are on big discounts. The discounts just don't look right. There was another one this morning we haven't talked about, Chrysalis. It came out yesterday and said they think they're pretty much certain they've sold something. They can't tell us what it is yet, but they're saying that it will add about 5.5p to the NAV. That implies that they've sold something. Well, that's that's their 3 million quid. They must have sold something that's going to bring in sort of 80, 100 million pounds into the portfolio of cash. They're going to apply a big chunk of that into buying back their stock, and it's on a massive discount again. So... 
there's just loads of little situations like that. Some of the stuff we talked about already, where things just look the wrong price, and we, we could get um, some quite decent returns, I hope. Well, let's hope so. That was James Carthew, the director of Quoted Data, with his thoughts about the current situation and the coming year. So it was my pleasure this week to catch up with Baroness Altman, probably best known to many of you as a pensions campaigner and former minister, Ros Altman, who sits in the House of Lords and has recently introduced a private member's bill to address this issue of cost disclosure for investment trusts. So I'm going to start off, Ros, if I may, by asking you, what does your private member's bill do? And then I'm going to ask you why you've introduced it and what you hope will happen from here. What the Private Members Bill aims to do is ensure that all listed UK investment companies, so that's closed-ended investment trusts and REITs, for example, and anything else that might qualify under that category, is no longer mistakenly classed as an alternative investment fund. That's the first bit. The associated parts of the bill would say, well, they are no longer classed as alternative investment funds, and they are already listed. So as with every other country, the EU-derived disclosure rules for charges, which come under the acronyms of PRIPS and MIFID direction, should no longer apply to them. And the reason I think I've been persuaded that that is so important is that looking at the investment company sector and the massive discounts that have opened up over the last year or two, it has become increasingly clear to me that our own domestic regulatory landscape has conspired to make these UK-listed companies uniquely and exaggeratedly expensive in terms of what investors are told or the charges they will pay for someone to manage the fund on their behalf. The critical part here is that it seems like for the last 10 years or so, these funds have been lumped together with hedge funds and private equity funds that don't disclose all their charges and are now being treated as if somehow the investor needs protection against them hiding charges away. Ironically, what that well-intentioned regulatory change over time has resulted in is investors being misleadingly told that the charges they pay are higher than they really are and higher by an enormous factor, you know, double, treble even sometimes. So unsurprisingly, these investment companies, which hold shares specialising in areas such as renewable energy and infrastructure and life sciences properties, laboratories and so on, have been starved of capital. Our own pension funds, who have been encouraged to invest specifically in those areas, have been put off doing so, and many have looked for non-UK listed companies. So they're boosting overseas growth and not ours, and boosting overseas energy security and not ours. And it just seemed to me that somebody needed to help the consumer, the pension investor, the institutional investor know more clearly what exactly they will pay for the investment management of a portfolio that they might want to invest in. Okay, so there's quite a lot of things in there. Let's just start with the practical impact of this. You've introduced a private member's bill in the House of Lords. That's a long way from saying that it's going to become law. But I think the the beauty of your particular bill is that it's relatively simple and it would just exempt investment companies or or listed UK investment companies from this panoply of uh, regulation that we had. Part of it's inherited from the European Union and part of it is something that we've done here in the UK ourselves. Well, it's inherited from the European Union in a way, but because it's been applied in a very odd manner here, it is only applicable to those companies listed here, non-UK. EU-based closed-ended listed investment companies do not have to disclose these charges, so they're made to look artificially cheap relative to our own, driving investors away from ours. So you've introduced this private member's bill. What actually happens next? What would it take for your private member's bill to become law? Well, without government supporting the bill, it doesn't have a hope. So clearly, this has been on the government's radar and people like 
Baroness Sharon Bowles and John Barron MP have been raising this for a while. Finally, we've got ministers engaged with the matter who have now agreed that the current system is wrong. They've agreed that the way these cost disclosures are applied is misleading consumers, as indeed has the regulator, the FCA. So there is agreement, and the government has introduced its own statutory instrument, which is basically another name for a regulation, which will change the situation to require those companies that are considered to be PRIPs, which are listed and already therefore disclose all their information in their report and accounts and the strict requirements placed on them by the UK listing authorities, if they want to be quoted in the UK, they have to meet these requirements, that they will be exempt from having to report, if you like, fictitious ongoing charges. The next stage needs to be and this is included in the private members bill, that it's not just PRIPs that has to change, but the regulatory system under MIFID. These are all EU-derived anacronyms. Of course. (laughs) But basically, both of those elements need to change. And ultimately, we don't yet have any wording or timetable for when the government's regulations will be both ready and laid and passed. That was three things. Not as, if, both, but. <laughs> not as if the government hasn't got a lot of other things to do, but it seems a bit yeah. absurd that it, you have to go through Parliament to get this potentially quite simple change made. But it's also asked the FCA, I think, to introduce some interim measures, or the FCA says it's looking at interim measures to alleviate the situation which they've finally woken up to. Yeah, so for the last few months, John Barron, Baroness Bowles and myself have been meeting with the FCA to try to help them understand that emergency action is needed because this market is under existential threat. Investment companies have been around for 150 years or more that are about one third of the companies in the FTSE 350 and that invest in these really important areas that we all want to support are just not able to raise money. Some of them are starting to buy back shares to try and narrow the discount, which means that they are investing in their own company rather than in the other types of projects, you know, wind farms and solar farms, etc., that desperately need money invested in them. We've been trying to persuade the regulator, as has the industry, that this is a real crisis within the financial services sector. It is really important for the national interest We've suggested that they could waive the current requirements. And they could do that. from the EU. But what the FCA have kept coming back and telling us is, well, we can't do it because the law says it has to be done this way. And so we're going to try to change the law and the government has recognised maybe it needs to. And the FCA has said it can only go so far in telling people that it might be okay to ignore the law until the law is changed. It is really important to stress alongside this that the FCA knows and has known for some time that many UK listed companies are actually ignoring this anyway. If they are big enough or if they have internal corporate directors who are authorised to oversee the charges disclosure, they recognise that this is an absolute nonsense and is really bad for business. And they have just ignored it. So not only are many of our specialist investment companies having this competitive disadvantage against overseas companies doing similar things, they also have been put in this position where even domestic companies are gaining an unfair advantage over those particular ones which pay an external company as their authorised corporate director. So the FCA, whose remit is to ensure fair competition, to ensure that consumers can make properly informed decisions, who also have responsibility for the proper functioning of markets, are presiding over a situation without, up till now, any action at all. The market has become dysfunctional. Firms are at significant risk. 
we are unable to compete internationally and even facing an unlevel playing field domestically where the biggest companies and some are able to just ignore it without any penalty from the FCA, which says, oh, well, we can't excuse anyone else from doing it or confirm that because it's the law. We as parliamentarians have tried to be pointing out to the FCA that it is failing in its basic core remits. Notwithstanding that, it has recently introduced the consumer duty which specifically states that all information given to the consumer in this country needs to be clear, fair, and not misleading. And this is certainly not fair and certainly misleading. And yet the action taken by the FCA does not go far enough to make sure that it won't continue to happen. So the government could solve part of this problem by legislating, and the FCA could do more in practice if it wasn't so fastidious if I can put it like that. But they could both fix this problem within the next three months or so, presumably, if they could get some parliamentary time. But are you hopeful that this thing will be sorted by, say, in three to six months? Even with the fairest of wins, legislation is not going to be done in three months, I'm afraid. A legislative change, we are talking, hopefully, within the life of this parliament, but with a general election coming sometime next year, presumably next autumn, but it could be before, Unless this legislation is absolutely prioritised and hurried through, it may well not even come into effect next year, because if there is an election, everything falls, and then a new government comes in and they decide on some other priorities. So what we're trying to do is press on all the levers to help people see that this is actually a really important national issue. If the government can prioritise its own statutory instruments, its own regulatory changes for both PRIPS and MIFID, the cost disclosure issue might well be addressed. But we don't even have the wording of those yet. And all the government has committed to is when parliamentary time allows. In the meantime, there is this private members bill that is already drawn up. It does have finalised wording. And If the government chose to go down that route, and many in the industry are backing the measures outlined in the bill, then there is a decent chance that this could perhaps be in by next summer. But that's probably realistically the earliest time that the legislative change will happen. In the meantime, I would still like to urge the regulators and the government to say, look, no other country is doing it. The UK has put itself in this invidious position because it's adopting international, European-wide regulations that aren't being applied in the EU to their own companies. So if we can't change the legislation immediately, what we could do is get together with the industry and maybe more quickly than legislative change, introduce a new disclosure of charges system for consumers that will properly show what investors pay as ongoing fees for these funds. The ASC has made warm noises about your legislation, but are they totally on course with this? Do they not want something slightly different from what you want? Is there any uh, nuance here? In uh, there's, there's a significant difference between the measures in the private members bill, which do do the trick, and the measures so far presented by both the FCA and the AIC. As far as we have seen, and following subsequent discussions with AIC and Investment Association and others who are responsible for these areas, the proposals so far will not change the top line figure that is reported to consumers as ongoing charges, which they do not actually pay and which are only applied to UK listed or UK based companies. So what the so-called interim measures would do is keep the top line figure, which is what everybody uses for the main feed that shows ongoing charges, and then rely on investors seeing some kind of asterisk or underneath line, which says, well, I know we're showing these as ongoing charges, but actually they're not ongoing charges and you don't actually pay them. This is what you do actually pay each year. Now, that can't be a recipe for clear charge disclosure, and it's likely to continue to mislead investors. The issue here is that if you are, let's say, a small pension fund or a retail investor, and you really want to put your money to work to boost sustainable growth or to boost energy security here, 
and you want to back some of these alternative energy type companies, you would not normally have enough money to back each one individually. And in any case, if you did, you would have a, a significant risk because you weren't diversified across a number of projects. So the investment company does this for you. You could buy into it, but people are being put off doing so. And indeed, retail platforms have dropped some of these companies and prevented their retail customers from even investing in them at all on the incorrect basis that they charge too much to the investor, which is actually not true at all. It's really a question of a market not functioning properly. The market isn't working. I'm getting a sense of your outrage of the fact that the market is not working and that companies are being treated differently, and that isn't fair. But I think I know where the problems that arise with the FSA come from. And you might agree with some of these because, you know, you've been a tireless campaigner on behalf of consumers and investors yeah. of many issues over many years. The FCA started back in the 1990s when unit trusts were still charging front-end loaded fees 5% before even your money was invested. Pension funds were charging big fees, which the consumers never really knew about. So the answer to that was, let's have some disclosure about the costs. And at the same time, we had passive funds coming along much cheaper. And therefore, that was it was important for consumers to know that what they were paying was a lot higher than what was available on other products. And the FCA is always sort of veered towards promoting the tracker fund approach, if you like, low cost investing, which is a good thing. And they've also been in favor of disclosure. So I think you can see where they're coming from with this, but they just seem to be blind to the issue of investment trusts. You can't argue that disclosure isn't a good thing. But I'm what, not. I'm no, not. No, it's about how we disclose it. Disclosure is essential. How we disclose it. Wrong information. That's worse. It's how we disclose it and what information is given in what format. That's really what we're talking about here, is it not? Well, I would nuance that even more. I find it ironic, as you rightly described, that I'm sort of on the other side because. I absolutely believe that we must have full transparency and full disclosure of what costs consumers have to pay, when they have to pay them, how much they will be charged, and how they can best analyse or assess for themselves a properly informed decision about which investment best meets their needs and offers them the value that they feel is best for them. I am 100% in favour of that. And that's why I have always campaigned for years to make sure that all the information is shown to the consumer in language that they can understand clearly, fairly and not misleadingly. But what we've created here is this system which is meant to help consumers make properly informed decisions, which is giving them the wrong information which only applies to our own country, no other. I mean, you know, after Brexit, we were meant to be dropping EU regulations anyway. Somehow we've managed to put ourselves in a position where we have made these EU regulations front and centre of the consumer information that we're giving in a way that no other European country does and in a way that has ended up misleading the very people we were trying to protect by telling them that an investment based here will cost them far more money than it actually will. The whole point here is to be careful to give the correct information. And we've gone to the wrong end of the spectrum. Having told them they didn't pay costs that they did pay, we're now telling them they pay costs that they don't pay, which is madness. You've talked about consumers and private investors. What do you make, though, of the argument that wealth managers, many of whom we used to know as stockbrokers and now known wealth managers, their arguments that actually we're not able to invest in some of these alternative assets in particular because we have to disclose numbers to our investors which aren't fair or representative, and therefore we're not going to do it. And yet, the same with them or with pension funds. You know, they, these are sophisticated investors who do know whether the figures are real or not. Do you think this is a real complaint or is it just a bit of special pleading here? No, I think it is an absolutely real complaint, and especially for pension funds, which I know much better than the, the wealth management side. You know, a, a small pension fund, you know, I'm not talking about the massive big boys who've got departments looking at all of this and don't need to go to an investment company. The smaller ones who want to diversify into these areas and want to support UK growth, as the Chancellor has urged them to, are also caught by the FCA and the pension regulators focus on low cost. And if they 
are investing in something that has reported that it has much higher costs. And they are required to report those to their members, then they can't just pretend a different figure, because that's the one that's required at the moment. They're required to so, report it, but they're not necessarily required to, uh, or are they, to... Yes, they are required. They have to say what the cost is right. and publish that number. That is a change that's happened over the last year or two. And in particular, in this year and back end of last year, everybody was told about this consumer duty. You must disclose fees. And everybody was told that the best thing you can do is look at value for money. How do you measure value for money? Well, the easiest and most obvious way is to look at comparing what a company charges relative to what a competitor charges. And if the UK companies are all told that they have to tell people that their charges are twice or three times as high as non-UK companies, it's pretty obvious that a pension fund will be driven or a wealth manager will be driven away from the UK to hold something that doesn't show that level of charges. And that's something that wasn't in place until the last year or two. All of this has coincided, unfortunately, with the rise in interest rates that we've seen, which is making equity investment and alternative investments look less attractive than just bog standard bonds that, that you can get a decent income from anyway, which you couldn't before. So there's been a natural move away from these kind of what are perceived to be riskier assets. There's also been underlying issues about liquidity in investments. And of course, the investor may worry about investing in areas that are less liquid. But even those investors who are quite happy to tolerate illiquidity are also caught by the rules that they have to show reasonable and lowish charges. So what you're saying is that for behavioural reasons, small pension funds and wealth managers are not investing in things which they could be investing in. And that's because they have to report these costs, even though they could say to their clients, well, these costs are a nonsense. We're professionals. We understand that. And therefore, we're going to do it anyway. Well, okay. they tried that at the beginning, actually. A number of pension exactly. funds told they, me. they tried that at the beginning of this crisis. And, you know, they saw the value opening up. There's the discounts, things that had been growing nicely and were exactly the areas they wanted to uh, diversify into. They were buying shares in these listed companies, the closed-end funds. Because they thought, well, this discount is, is obviously an, an anomaly. We've come out of COVID. We've had all sorts of other interruptions in the market. So we're going to back them. They backed them. And the discount doubled because retail investors were selling them. And also other investors were selling them because of the charges issue and because of other reasons. So they gave up in the end. The derating we've seen in investment trust, which, as you say, has been very marked taken us back to levels we haven't seen since the global financial crisis on average. Most people I talk to would say that the cost disclosure issue is a factor, but the movement in interest rates is by far the more important factor that's driven this. You're not saying that the whole derating is due to this cost disclosure issue. I've never said that. I, no, no, I, I didn't say that. I just tried to get I a sense. I made it clear of... before there are other factors, and I went through what those other factors are. But this is the one that's homegrown. This is the one that is only UK own goal. And that's under our control. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I think it's just a question of trying to put this in some kind of context, before, unless people came to the conclusion that somehow just fixing the cost disclosure issue would stop the derating. That obviously is... Well, we can't know at the margin to what extent the cost disclosure issue has driven selling or prevented buying. What we can know is that it is a factor and differences at the margin do make a significant impact on markets. And therefore, if there is something that is clearly anomalous and clearly uniquely bad for the UK sector, we should do as much as we can and as quickly as we can to remove that barrier, to remove that impediment that is entirely created by UK regulatory change that was well-intentioned, that was trying to make sure consumers were not misled about charges, which has ended up doing that very thing. But I just don't want this portrayed as, oh, well, the industry doesn't want to disclose charges. That's absolutely not the case. And I, for one, have always been in favour of proper disclosure. I've fought for that for years. So I would be very upset if people characterise this as somehow pretending that you're not paying charges. 
because that's not ever the intention and these charges must be disclosed properly. Well, that was Baroness Alvin, who has introduced this private member's bill attempting to resolve what we all regard as a serious problem of cost disclosure for investment companies. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.